Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. On Monday, just uh, just under two weeks ago, my wife and I uh, took the kids out to a place in downtown Carborough at the corner of West Main Street and South Greensboro Street called Cliff's Meat Market. How many of you have ever been to Cliff's Meat Market in Carborough? Okay, several of you. There's nothing special about this store. In fact, if somebody was to drive by and look at the curb appeal, they would probably not want to visit it just based upon the kind of the rundown appearance. But usually those are the best places to visit. Upon entering in the store, my attention was immediately drawn to the spread of beef and select meats that were underneath the butcher cap or butcher uh, counter right there in the center of the store. So I made my way over there and I looked at all the different spreads there and I chose that uh, uh, ribeye and that happened to be the best piece of steak that I've ever cooked. I certainly recommend Cliff's, uh, Cliff's, if I can say it right, meat market to anyone that is looking. Well, while I was there, that wasn't the only thing that we purchased. I had to make sure that my children had a full and complete childhood, and so I bought them a bag of pork rinds, uh, because that's how you have a full and complete childhood, right? Just eat straight pig skin. Like, you can feel your heart clogging up as you eat it. Uh, so they get one a week, right? That's, that's our deal, one a week. And then also, in the freezer, my wife went over there and saw this huge, just huge uh, box of filleted trout. She's like, oh, I love fish. Let's get some fish. So we Bought it, we took it home, and we set it on the countertop to let it thaw out. Because with this huge fish, we didn't want to just shove it in our freezer. We wanted to thaw it out so that we could break it down into manageable different portions so that we could eat it by dividing it up into multiple different bags based upon a portion size for our family. Well, as things go for most of us, right, things got busy. So we don't want the fish to spoil, and so we took the fish and we placed it in our refrigerator, not our freezer. A few days go by, we begin to smell something foul in our kitchen. I looked around, I'm like, what is that? I mean, I showered a few days ago, it can't be me. It's been a few days, at least. I don't smell that bad yet. Everything looked fine in the kitchen. Everything looked normal. We go over to the refrigerator, open it up, and exactly that's what it was. That fish, uh, apparently that bag had a leak in it, and there was fish juice all over our refrigerator. All over the top, had run down the back and into the uh, little crisper trays that pull out, sitting. Our fruit was sitting in fish juice. So my wife pulls it out, and I'm there observing, doing other things. Uh, I was observing, trying to figure out what's going on. And it took me the whole time when she was cleaning up to figure out what was going on before I jumped in and realized, help, no, I'm just kidding. So she's cleaning up the whole thing, and then we finally situate it and get it squared away. Well, if you were to walk into our kitchen and, and, and observe everything that you could see from the outside, you would not perceive that anything was wrong. But you could smell it. See, what happened was behind the refrigerator, the remnants within the refrigerator was decaying, causing the rest of the kitchen to smell bad. Take your Bibles with me and turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 this morning as we continue our journey. Now, most of you are going to be able to give this review by heart, but every week we have a visitor or somebody that's new to the series, and so I want to make sure we understand the context. Uh, This book was not written by one of the 12 disciples, James. It was written by the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now, James was a skeptic for most of his life. He grew up underneath the same household of Jesus, did not accept the fact that he was the Messiah. Matter of fact, it wasn't until Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and appeared before James, his half-brother, that James became a believer, a follower of Christ, gave his life to Christ. Well, God's grace in James' life was clearly significant. 
James ended up becoming one of the pillars of the first church that was ever officially founded, and that was the Church of Jerusalem. Well, during the particular writing of this letter, James was writing this to the Jews, the Christian Jews specifically. We see that in James chapter 1. He was writing it to the Jews that had dispersed. We call that the diaspora. Now, the Jews that were part of the Jerusalem church were underneath severe persecution. And so in efforts to really protect themselves and their families, they left and they fled and they planted other churches. They founded other churches in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, James still had a heart for these people. And so understanding that they could be easily fooled into buying into a philosophy that was anti-God or anti-Bible, he writes this letter to really deliver one point, and that was this. If you claim to be a Christian, then act like it, and this is how you ought to act as a Christian. And so James is really one of the most practical books when it comes to how we should act and respond as a Christian. Now, we oftentimes joke because we've been studying the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul's writing style is, is kind of all over the place. He writes from a, uh, kind of like a lawyer standpoint. He goes all around the point before he addresses the point specifically. Uh, James is the total opposite. He will slap you upside the face with the truth, and he does it every single passage we go through. And sometimes I'm like, James, you could have toned it back just a tad bit for us to be able to, to dissect this. But we understand that his heart was in the right place. He wanted people to genuinely live for the Lord. And so he writes this particular letter. This morning, we dive into really the third section of James. James dividing up into really multiple different sections. And this third section, as we introduce this, we are going to look at really one of the most popular scriptures in all of James, and that is the subject of our speech. One that applies to married people, unmarried people, children, Older people, it applies to everyone, because everyone talks or communicates in some way. So when it comes to this realm of Christianity, what James does is he delivers his point, and then he supports his point through vivid images and illustrations. I mentioned this several weeks ago, but some theologians actually say that James was a message in which he preached and transcribed into a letter. Now, we don't know the answer to that specifically, and that doesn't, whether that's true or not, doesn't give us or change the validity of the fact that it was an inspired letter. But reading what we're going to read today gives support to the fact that it may have been a message that he was preaching, because it gives a lot of illustrations to this. And so we're going to look at it in James chapter 3. We're only going to focus on the first 12 verses here, and so let's read them together. My brethren... Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things, and if anyone does not stumble in word, he is perfect man, able to also bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in the horses' mouths, so that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue is a little member, and it boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindle? And the tongue is a fire and a world of iniquity, and the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly, evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water 
and fresh. At the beginning, I mentioned about the example of our kitchen smelling like decaying fish. Looking at the refrigerator, again, we can assume that everything was okay. Why? Well, because on the outside of the refrigerator, it's clean. Everything looks put together. But the remnants of what was happening on the inside of that refrigerator was coming through by the smell of the decaying, rotting fish. What, Paul, or what James wants us to understand in this passage here this morning is on the outside, we may look like everything's put together. We've got our clothes on, we're at church. Well, I'm glad we've got our church clothes on. Glad we have clothes on, period. We've got our church clothes on, we're going to church. Everything looks good. But what often happens is that when we open up our mouth and we begin to talk, we reveal what is truly going on in our hearts. And what James wants us to understand with our passage this morning is that our words reveal the foul stench often or the sweet nature of our hearts. Our words reveal our hearts as John MacArthur states, he says this, James personifies the tongue as really being the representative of human depravity and wretchedness. As we dissect the truths within our passage this morning, what we're going to discover is the importance of controlling our tongues when it comes to our Christian testimony. And as we continue to live for Christ, we understand that the attacks of Satan are going to come fast and they're going to come furious. And perhaps one of the best ways that Satan can cause us to be ineffective for the kingdom of God is through the lack of wisdom that we possess when it comes to maintaining our tongues. The title of the message this morning is The Importance of Wisdom Within a Christian's Speech. The scriptures have a lot to say, of course, about the importance of controlling our tongues. In fact, there are several important passages that scripture within Scripture that indicate that our mouths are the very way in which our fallen nature is displayed throughout the world. In Matthew 15, what Jesus is doing is he's conversing, as he usually did during his earthly ministry, with the Pharisees and the other Jews about the law, because they were focusing everything on the external aspects of the law. As long as you do this, do this, and do this, you're righteous with God. And Jesus had a radical message for them, and he was trying to help them understand it has nothing to do with what you do. It's all based upon the grace of God. We refer to that as salvation. And in this conversation, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 11, Jesus says, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth of a man defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. We're not completely understanding what Jesus meant, Peter asks for clarity. He asks for further direction upon that statement, and Jesus then responds. He says, Are you still without understanding? Do you not understand, yet understand, that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Because they were making a big deal about what type of food you should eat and shouldn't eat. He says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat without unwashed hands does not defile a man. The point that Jesus was making here is that people during this particular time period were more concerned about violating the law from a ceremonial aspect. Eating, washing your hands before you eat that they were not concerned with violating the law from a moral aspect, in this case, not guarding their mouths. Our speech carries great weight when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to our marriage, when it comes to our relationships. So say again, why is our speech such a big deal? Because it does reveal what is in our hearts. If your tongue is consistent with a sharp, sarcastic nature, then what you're revealing 
is some sort of oftentimes deep-seated anger and bitterness and discontent that's within your own heart. We can never share the love of Christ effectively if we cannot control our speech. And so what James does is in these first 12 verses is he begins with the ramifications of our speech and then he drives the point home with the power of our speech. And so the first thing we're going to look at here is the ramifications of our speech. And we understand that in everything that we do, everything that we uh, attend to do and say comes with a set of consequences. And the greater the responsibility, the greater accountability and scrutiny that comes with that. And this same thing applies to our speech. And verses 1 and 2, we read it and it's like, James, what are you talking about? What James does is he starts off by addressing the fact that our speech is under a greater spiritual scrutiny based upon our authority and responsibility. Which brings us to our first sub-point here. The tongue receives spiritual scrutiny. James starts off in verse 1 and says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, when we first read this, it seems as if James is discouraging people proclaiming and teaching the gospel. How would that go over if I was to, uh, as a pastor, was to tell someone that comes to me and says, I believe that the Lord is calling me into the ministry and I would try to talk them out of it. I don't see too many pastoral books that are written saying, if you're thinking about going into ministry, run away. <laughs> Maybe there should be some, but I don't see too many of them. And it seems as if James is saying that here. You want to proclaim the gospel? I want you to understand this. You better be very careful before you just start going out there and teaching the gospel. What is he saying here? James is discouraging people from teaching God's word, not based upon their inability to do so, but really based upon their flippant desire to do so without thinking before they actually speak. See, what James is saying here is that when we teach the word of God, we are placing a greater responsibility upon our shoulders because we are in that particular moment describing the holiness, the righteousness, and the very character of God. And so to do that flippantly, to do that with a tongue that is opposite of the character of God, or to utilize that position in a way that would bring you personal benefit, you are increasing your chance and you're bringing upon yourself greater and stricter judgment from God. See, James discusses, or Jesus actually discusses this issue of, of false teachers in Matthew 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37, Jesus is talking about the false prophets and those that claim to be messengers of God when really they are nothing more than liars. This is what he says. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of the things of his heart bring forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word that men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is saying here that every single person will have to give an account of his words. Not just the teachers, but every person has to give an account for what they say. Going back to what James says here. What James wants the readers to understand is that before they quickly assume the responsibility of teaching and proclaiming God's word, they must make sure they are ready and willing to be held accountable for what they teach. I oftentimes tell people this, as a pastor, I am accountable directly to God. And so my prayer is that in my entire life, through my entire ministry, that my preaching would never be affected by who sits in the audience, but would be affected by what God's word says or what God says in his word. Because at the end of the day, if somebody decides to leave 
or somebody decides to stay based upon what I choose to say in order to keep them here, I don't answer to them at the end of the day. I answer to God. And so when it comes to our church, those that would want to teach and those that want to teach a Sunday school class, we have a leadership covenant that we would ask that they would follow. And one of those reasons being these very verses here. We don't just place anyone in that position for their own sakes as also for the sakes of our people. James says that if you want to teach the word of God, you better be ready to have stricter judgment come your way. Because teaching the word of God brings a stricter accountability. This past week, uh, I actually took care of something in my mouth regarding my teeth that I had been putting off for many months. Uh, several months ago, I had a shot of excruciating pain that I've never experienced before. Matter of fact, I remember exactly where I was. We were sitting here in life groups, and Tim and Alina were at the table. My family was at the table because it was that bad. I remember exactly where I was, and I was eating, and I bit into a bagel, and all of a sudden, just like that, searing pain shot up my tooth all the way up into my body, it seemed like. And I called the, uh, the dentist, and they went, and they took x-rays, and they're like, I don't really know what's going on. And that lasted for probably several months, and to the point where I noticed that there was a little white patch above my tooth, indicating that there was a deep infection. So I went back to the dentist's office, and I uh, had a cleaning a procedure cleaning done on Wednesday, and I had the dental hygienist come, and she explained to me what she noticed in the x-rays, and I was respectful. I listened to her. I was thankful for that. But I didn't listen to her as intently as I did when the general dentist came in to explain to me what was going on. Well, why? It's not because it had anything to do with her. It was because of the level of authority that he carried. His words contained greater weight. Well, then I found out that my tooth was so messed up that he couldn't even take care of it. So he referred to me to an endodontist. Never even knew that there was a such thing as an endodontist. But apparently you can go to school and focus on things like root canals and other things. I had to get a root canal done. I never had that done in my entire life. Highly recommend it to anyone, though. It didn't hurt at all. And so I went over to the endodontist on Friday, and he looked at my tooth. And believe it or not, I listened to what he said more than I did my general dentist. Why? Because he had even greater weight and even greater authority on the matter than my general dentist did. That's the point that James wants to make here when it comes to teaching and proclaiming the Word of God. The very fact that somebody's in front of other people teaching the Word of God is placing themselves in a position of authority. So James says, you better not do it flippantly because it carries great weight. During the Old and New Testament writings, the rabbis often held the most influential position within the synagogue if not within the entire Jewish community. Matter of fact, they were so influential that the word rabbi literally meant great one or my great one. With the privilege of teaching God's word comes great responsibility, and James stresses in these verses that before anyone can achieve this position and power, they must understand that accepting it will come a greater spiritual scrutiny. But James says, really the first ramification of the tongue is a greater level of spiritual scrutiny the second ramification of the tongue is the fact that, letter B, the tongue reveals spiritual maturity. The tongue reveals spiritual maturity. Look at verse 2. He says, For we all stumble in many things, and if anyone does not stumble in word, he is perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. And I love the fact that James is using a plural first-person pronoun in this verse. He says, For we, we all stumble in many things. In Good Public Speaking 101, they tell you not to use the term you 
in the audience because in doing so it communicates that you are elevating yourself above the audience and that you're also separating yourself from the audience. And if I was to sit here and say, you need to get this right, you need to figure this out, just by me, the mere fact of me saying it, you're like, whoa, whoa, yo, calm down. Well, James understands this. But I'm also comforted in the fact that James, who's referred to as James the Just, puts himself in the same category and saying, I stumble as well. We all stumble. But those that control his tongue, they show a greater level of spiritual Maturity. What James is talking about here is the fact that just as the tongue reveals what is in our hearts, it is also an indicator of our level of spiritual growth. The Puritan pastor and author from the 1600s, Thomas Manton, describes that within the Jewish religion, there were two categories of students. There were those that were beginners based upon the fact that they began to show virtuous actions. And there was the perfect ones, which I would refer to as the perfect ones, and they were the ones that had attained some level of progress. So it's with that understanding in mind that Manton goes on to explain that within this verse, James highlights the fact that Christians who are not able to bridle their tongues indicate that they are just beginners, they are immature Christians, and those that are able to bridle their tongues indicates that they have some sort of progress spiritually. Those that can control what they have to say and say the right things at the right moments indicate that they have grown in their spiritual walk. What James does is he highlights both the difficulty of controlling the tongue as well as the spiritual progress of one that can master the tongue. And we should be encouraged in the fact that James says, I too stumble. Within these two verses, James highlights the importance of our speech. He provides a warning for those that want to teach God's word. He says, hey, just remember. You're held to a higher level of spirituality or spiritual scrutiny. But he also provides really an insight to someone's level of spiritual maturity. If they're always talking and saying things that are not edifying to God, it probably indicates that they're not really walking in their relationship with God as close as they ought to versus one that controls their speech. But as we move into the next section, what we see here is really the power of the tongue that James wants us to help us to understand and grasp this concept that your tongue, your words carry a significant amount of weight. In verses 3 through 12, what James does is he gives us three examples to help us understand the power of the tongue. First off, what he does is he says that the tongue has the power to rule. The tongue has the power to rule. Look at verses 3 down to the beginning part of verse 5. He says, Indeed, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. We see here two powerful illustrations to show us the significance of our tongue. First off, and I'll show you a diagram here, and I do want to apologize because I was informed by Ruth, who works with horses, that this diagram is not correct. And I told her I got it from the Internet, which is impossible because everything on the Internet is correct. But this gives you an overview of what a horse's bridle looks like. Now, he doesn't say bridle on a horse. He talks about a bit of the horse. What you see here is that bit piece. You probably can't even read it because it's so small. But the bit piece is a little metal piece that goes into the very corner of their mouth. And it typically lays only one and a half pounds or less. What that bit piece does is this small piece of metal rests on the gums in a space between the incisors and the molars. And the way that a bit works is through the application of pressure on one side of the horse's mouth, depending on which way the reins are pulled of that rider. 
the natural inclination of that horse is to move away from the discomfort or pressure. So in essence, that tiny little metal piece weighing one and a half pounds or less controls an 1,100 pound animal. You pull it to one side, that horse goes to one side. What we may seem as insignificant is significant to that horse. James uses a second illustration to prove his point. He talks about a rudder of a ship. The rudder of a ship is a small vertical blade, as you see there. Many of you know what that is. And it's typically attached underneath the boat. The small rudder, compared to the gigantic size of the boat, controls which way that boat goes when that helmsman steers it. As he steers it one way, the water reflects and steers the entire ship, forcibly striking the water on whatever way it wants that ship to go. Stephen Davy, in his commentary on James, recounts the following story that happened back in World War II. The German battleship Bismarck, as you see a picture of that here, was launched into battle with Great Britain in World War II. Bismarck was the pride of the German naval fleet. How many of you have ever heard of the Bismarck? Go ahead and raise your hand. Several of you in here. And it was engineered to bring the British Navy down to a watery grave. As soon as the news was leaked, the British Navy sent their finest battleship, HMS Hood, with just over 1,400 officers and sailors on board to intercept Bismarck and sink it. Instead, when the two ships engaged, Bismarck quickly sank the British battleship. The situation was desperate as Bismarck now had command over British sea lanes, which Great Britain depended upon for survival. The British Admiralty scraped together a small fleet in hopes of catching Bismarck before she could get back into port for refueling. One small aircraft carrier got close enough to launch a few airplanes, one of which was able to drop a single torpedo into the water, which sped towards the massive battleship. One wouldn't think that a little torpedo could do much damage, but it struck and jammed Bismarck's rudder. And all that big, huge ship, as you can see here, could do was spin around in a big circle. British destroyers arrived late that night, took up their positions, and began to shell Bismarck as she continued her frustrated circle around and around and around. And the loss of that small rudder meant that the great Bismarck could no longer be controlled, and in the subsequent battle, Bismarck sustained heavy damage and eventually sank beneath the waves of the sea, as you see on that picture there of it being underwater. That huge battleship was sunk because of that tiny little rudder. James says that just as this tiny bit can control an 1,100-pound animal, a tiny rudder can control a, a, a floating city, so does our tongue rule over our destiny. What James says in verse 5, even so the tongue is a little member, but it boasts great things. The word boast in this passage means to talk big or, be, or to be grand eloquent. In other words, James says that our tiny little tongues can steer the direction of our future. Our tongues can bless our marriage. Our tongues can curse our marriage. Our tongues can bless or curse our job. Our relationships cause division, defy God or defend God. And perhaps the worst kind of abuse is not physical abuse. It's verbal abuse. Our speech has the power to rule over the future of our lives. And just like the bits of that horse's mouth, it can shape our destiny. As you grow and you mature in your relationship, your marriage relationship, you'll realize this definitely later than sooner, oftentimes. And that's how much weight your speech has in your relationship with your spouse. You can say something and literally ruin the rest of your day, 
your night, your week. What you thought was going to be a romantic day, night, could completely go to the opposite of that. And so as I grow and mature in our marriage, we've uh, been married nine years now, the, the thing that brings out the worst in me are home projects. And I'm probably the only one that falls into that category. Actually, I'm not because Tim and I have had some good talks in the past. But Tim's a lot better at home projects than I am. Tim saved our marriage this week. On, was it Thursday or Friday? One of these days, I think it was Thursday, I was laying laminate flooring upstairs. And I did it in high school, and so uh, that was quite a few years ago. But there were some things that I was clearly doing wrong. And my wife was being very sweet to me. She came upstairs, and she was letting me know about some separations that had occurred, just edifying me. And um, usually I would respond back, but I caught myself this time. She's like, you need to call Tim. I said, Tim, please come save our marriage. So Tim comes over and realizes or helps me understand that I was actually putting in, and don't laugh because anybody could do it, but I was putting in the laminate flooring backwards, okay? And so that's why I wasn't clipping together. But I realized that I needed to hold my tongue because I was going to say something that would make her upset. She did nothing to me. But in that moment of wisdom, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but in that moment of wisdom, I realized that if I'm going to ruin the rest of our night, perhaps the rest of our week, then if I, I don't want to ruin it, you better keep your mouth shut. It also helped I was reading this passage this week, too. But James wants us to understand that our tongues, that steers the destiny of our entire life. That's how powerful this little muscle is for our entire life. But not only does he say that our tongues have the power to rule, in other words, the power to change our destiny, he says the tongues have the power to ruin. Look at verse, the end of part of verse 5 down to verse 6. He says, see how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. And the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, and it sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire the uh, set on fire by hell. These are some of the very serious actions of what James expresses regarding the tongue. James compares our tongue to a raging forest fire. Now, there is a lot of, of comparison to that. Not only does a forest fire destroy everything in its path, it affects regions far away from that forest fire. For example, some of you probably didn't even realize this, but last week on Thursday and Friday in particular, our uh, air conditions, our air quality was extremely uh, bad. It was terrible air quality. Some of you may have noticed that if you were outside working and running or whatever, your lungs may have felt a little heavier or you may have noticed a little bit more of a haze. The reason for that was because of the forest fires that were burning in Washington and in the northwestern part of our states. So how in the world are we affected 3,000 miles away? Well, as the news described, what was happening is that fire was burning out of control and that smoke was being spread all throughout the atmosphere. It got caught up in a jet stream, and that jet stream brought it all the way across the United States, all the way to the coast of North Carolina, affecting the breathing of us here. What James wants us to understand is that when your tongue and your talking and the, and the power to ruin in your tongue not only affects those that are in directly in front of you and whom you're directly talking to, the remnants of that affects generations. Look at what we're dealing with specifically now in terms of race. Things that were said years and years and years ago 
are still affecting us today. And the list goes on and on and on. But James goes on to say that our tongue defiles the whole body. What does that word mean, defile? In this context, it means to pollute or to pollute or contaminate. In other words, James says that when our tongues engage in expressing the vile thoughts that stem from our hearts, it affects our body by setting it on a course of destruction. Then he adds this, they are set on fire the course of nature. In other words, our tongues have the power to change the rest of our life. For example, a person that goes around with a complaining tongue has been pegged as a complainer. A person that goes around with a sarcastic tongue has been pegged as a jerk. And a person that goes around with a hateful tongue has been pegged as a hater. Our tongues have the power to literally make or break us. This is why Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, what comes out of a man is that which defiles a man. But look at verse 6. James says, and he adds this at the tail end of that verse, it is set on fire by hell. What is he saying here? What James is saying, and again, he's addressing Christians. He's not addressing non-Christians. He's saying that when you do not control your tongue and you do not allow the Holy Spirit to control your tongue, then who is in control of it? Well, it's the influence of Satan. When you're speaking without being under control with your tongue, Satan is literally using your tongue to spread his agenda and his propaganda, not the kingdom of God. This is what James means when he says it's set on fire by hell. You are now a proponent in your speech for the kingdom of Satan, not the kingdom of God. Some of you have a gas fireplace, right? You go home and you may look into that gas fireplace and you can see a little light burning. It's the pilot light. It's constantly burning if you have it set up so that when you go over there and you want to have a, you know, you have a, a cold day in the wintertime, it happens like a couple of days out of the year in North Carolina, and you want to go turn on that fireplace, you go over to that switch and you flip the switch and what happens? Boom, that fire lights up. It lights up because of the pilot light. And what James wants us to understand is that our tongue is a pilot light. And at any moment, with any flip of the switch, we can say something and cause a tremendous fire. And some of you are sitting here this morning and you can remember a time in which someone said to you one thing that changed your perception about that person. James says your tongues are powerful and they have the power to ruin. But finally, not only do they have the power to ruin, they have the power to reveal. In verses 7 and 8, James uses another analogy to describe the tongue. In verses 9 through 12, James then applies that analogy to highlight the complicated dichotomy of our tongue. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, and a creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. James recognizes the great feats of man when it comes to taming some of the most dangerous and outrageous of creatures. In this verse, James highlights every category of animal. He says that we can tame animals that walk, crawl, fly, and swim. We can tame a 13,000-pound elephant. We can tame powerful lions, tigers, and bears. We can tame or at least contain deadly snakes that have the ability to drop a man with one blow. We tame powerful whales and contain deadly sharks. James recognizes that man is literally the top of the food chain, but even in all that power of man, no one can tame this. 
No one can tame this. After discussing this power, James says in verses 9 through 12, With it we bless God and the Father. With it we curse men who have been made in the symbol tool of God. Out of their same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. There's a spring. Bring forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or grapevine figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. On one particular night, Mrs. Stevenson was awakened by the scream of terror from her husband. In the middle of the night, Mr. Stevenson had a horrible, horrible dream in which he dreamed that he was slowly becoming a man of evil. And this man of evil was taking over the world, uh, conducting heinous, horrible crimes. Well, it was in that dream and that inspiration that this particular man had, he wrote a book. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If you've read that book before, and I was informed because I read the abridged version by Pastor Bryce who read the actual version, it's slow at times, but you understand the concept of the story. You've got Dr. Jekyll, who is a brilliant scientist, and he created a way, a potion, in which he wanted to change himself. And in drinking that potion, he morphed himself into a man of evil, Mr. Hyde. Well, as the story progresses, that became such a routine for him that Dr. Jekyll ended up transforming into Mr. Hyde without even drinking the potion. And as the story ends, not to give it away, but I guess I will at this time, he dies. And as Dr. Jekyll is in the clothes, or as Mr. Hyde is in the clothes of Dr. Jekyll, the authorities find a note. And in that note, they discover that the horrible, terrible, gruesome Mr. Hyde was the same man as the good, loving Dr. Jekyll. And what James wants us to understand here is the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde nature of our tongue. So the same tongue, we bless God, but we curse man. But then he really drives the, the dagger home into our hearts. And he says, listen, you curse men, but guess what? The very men that you curse are made in the similitude of the very God in whom you praise. Brethren, this ought not to be so. You need to control your mouth. James highlights the absurdity of this dichotomy through the illustrations of fresh water and salt water and a fig tree. And through these illustrations, James wants the Christians to understand which fountain our speech best resembles. One author states, Within the mountain of self there is a great struggle, for there are two streams within it, but only one opening. If God had meant it otherwise, and He would have created us with two mouths, one for blessing God and one for cursing fellow man, but He only created one mouth. As we close this morning, it is of utmost importance that we value our tongue and our speech to be honoring and glorifying God. Now, I know as human nature, we'll get in a car and the first thing we'll say to our wife is something sarcastic. I'm, I'm assuming it's because usually the men are the ones who say something dumb. So we say something to our wife and we can forget everything we just said or we just heard in God's word. Brethren, this ought not to be so. If I can close out with one final illustration, since I used the root canal earlier today, I'll talk about brushing your teeth. I do brush my teeth, by the way. I have soft teeth is what they tell me is why it happened. Okay, I'll buy it. Let's pretend that this uh, 85-cent tube of toothpaste aim is our mouths. The outside of this is our mouth. Well, of course, inside of it, we know, is toothpaste, right? Let's just pretend our mouths, we have words that we communicate. 
Well, we can do one of two things with our words. This toothpaste could be used to put toothpaste on the tube properly. We put it on the tube and we can use this to brush our teeth. Now it's benefiting us. It's controlled and it's used for its intended purposes to bring blessing to my mouth so I don't have to go back to the dentist. But there's a level of maturity when it comes to brushing our teeth and applying the toothpaste to the, to the toothbrush. For example, you go into our bathroom this morning, I guarantee you there's probably toothpaste on the countertop. Because my kids will go in, and being most kids, they're more immature when it comes to brushing their teeth. They take this same tube of toothpaste that is used to be a benefit, and they go to the toothbrush and they squeeze it. But they don't know how to control their squeeze. And so what they're doing is they're squeezing it all out because they're, under, they're not in control. And some of you are already saying stop. But I'm just, I mean, it's just all over the place. And now what we realize is that this same tube of toothpaste that was a benefit underneath the maturity and the control of somebody applying it to the toothbrush has now made a mess of everything. Well, if I tell Kaysen, go clean it up, guess what? You can't. You can't put this back in here. And it's the same thing with our words. We can't take back what we say. What James wants us to understand in this passage this morning is that as Christians, we have to be mature enough to take this mouth that we have, that God has blessed us with, and use it for edification, edification by applying it in a mature way. You take those words and you speak life. There's a popular song out there that many of you probably have heard by Toby Mac called Speak Life, right? He's out there talking about how we all go through signs of, of, of times of depression and heartbreak. You can either ruin someone or you can speak the words of Christ and speak life into someone. As a Christian, allow your tongue to be controlled by the Holy Spirit.